Guys, welcome. Grab a seat. Jesse, did you just do that whole every child announcement like a Kenny G sax solo, just one breath the whole time? Like you took such a deep breath afterwards. I was like, was that one breath through all of that? It's fantastic. Oh, I know. Anyways, <laughs> let's just keep moving. Hey, um, guys, six months, six months we have been in the book of Mark and we're wrapping it up today. So um, I know, and like for those of you that have been a part of Hub State City for like the past couple of years, you're like six months for just one gospel, like that's too little of time. Like usually you spend six years going through it. We spent like, I don't know, three years going through the gospel of John. Uh, we broke it up though. So we did this a little bit different. We just decided we want to walk through all of this together in one fell swoop and assuming everything goes according to plan. Who knows what's going to happen? We will accomplish that goal today. We will be done with Mark's gospel. Six months, I think April 11th was our first sermon that we started in it. Um, but before we go too deep, let me just do this real quick and explain something to you. Um, for those of you that are big, big fans of my really awkward and weird um, hand motions when I preach, and I know like a lot of you are, I'm going to seem a little robotic and stiff today, and my left arm might just fall off at some point which is a result of uh, me being up on the top of Mary's Peak yesterday and deciding my only way to get down Mary's Peak would be to ride a mountain bike down the Northridge Trail. I've done that multiple, multiple times. I've navigated it fairly safely. Yesterday was a little bit different in that as I was coming around a corner, there was a tree that had fallen and they'd cut it, um, but it was all happening so fast, about 20 miles an hour, that I just caught it at the glimpse of my eye and realized I'm going to hit that tree um, and so, you know, thinking like I'm a linebacker from the NFL, I just dipped my shoulder and went into it thinking that somehow that tree was going to move, not me. Um, I lost. Now here's the thing. So you think about this much body weight hitting a tree. What happened is the tree didn't move, but I certainly did. And it actually like ping ponged me off to add insult to injury, like shoved me across the whole trail. And then I hit another tree. So I was just ping-ponging down the trail, hitting trees left and right, no control. So you may not see a lot of movement out of the left arm today, um, but it could also just because I'm old, and that's probably a part of the problem. But man, we're going to wrap up Mark's gospel today. Uh, before I continue, let me just say this. I think it's going to be helpful to clarify, um, for those of you that actually have physical Bibles open, if you open up your phone or if you're familiar with the book of Mark, most versions don't end in chapter 8, right? Now, here's the deal. I believe that's where actually Mark stopped it. And so we need to clarify this because if you open your Bible, it actually goes all the way to um, like 20 verses, right? But that's probably most likely not where Mark's intention in ending it was. So most biblical scholars using this method called textual criticism believe that Verses 9 through 20 are like a later edition, so think like a director's cut, right? Um, and so this stuff was added back in. You can do your own research, but the evidence strongly points to verse 8 being the original intended ending, and so that's where we're going to end it today, right? Um, but with that, there is this thing that we have to acknowledge. This is like growing dilemma for me, right? Because no other gospel ends like it ends if you just end it at verse 8, right? Like every other gospel has this like joyful reunion with Jesus and his followers, kind of like Frodo being reunited with the fellowship at the end of 
Return of the King for, I don't know, two hours of a reunion, right? Except for here in Mark, um, we don't see that. It's not even like it's a neutral ending. Like if you just read it up until verse 8 and ignore verses 9 through 20, um, which I'm telling you is okay. I'm, I'm up here telling you I think it's okay that you ignore these verses from the Bible because now they're, they're accurate, right? When you read 9 through 20, you're like it's an accurate depiction of some of the things that happened. Mark probably, you know, um, ended it on 8. And then as they kind of like read it, they're like, this isn't like a fitting ending. It just kind of stops abruptly here. And so um, we want to kind of discover today um, but we're not going to get till the end. Like, why does Mark make that choice, right? The followers of Jesus um, and how he ends it actually seem to be like disobeying, right? They, they get this command from this angel, but then it says they run away scared, which is a theme that now over the past six months we should have picked up on, right? Especially the past couple of weeks. We pick up on this theme of Jesus's disciples at the very end of his life running away scared, right? And so he really ends it with the theme that he's been carrying out. And we're going to address this at the end, but after we kind of look at the, the passage and, and put Mark kind of into like its grand narrative. And so I'm going to do a little bit of just recapping. Some of you haven't been here for all of Mark's gospel, or maybe you're not super familiar with it. So a lot of what we're going to do today is less kind of expositing these last eight verses more kind of setting it up and framing it through once again, what is Mark's whole point in the gospel? So, so let me do this. Let me pray one more time for us, um, and then we're going to just jump into it. Father, we, we come before you humbly, recognizing that there is an authority in your word. Um, your word is gospel to us. It is good news to us, and we recognize that, that through your friend Mark, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark recorded so much of what he saw, so much of what his friends saw as they walked and talked with you and your son, Jesus. And, and so as we wrap up Mark's gospel today, God, would we come under the authority of not just your word, but the authority of you, our righteous and reigning king, our, our heavenly father, um, our Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. Would you Bring your word to life inside of us and transform us today through the gospel. May we be people that look more like you today as we spend time fellowshipping and worshiping and hearing truth from you. In your name we pray. Amen. So again, we started this journey back in like April. And if you remember, right from the very beginning, Mark declares his intentions. He says very forth rightly, like, what am I writing about here? He says this in like, um, really just right up front. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, or it could be translated. And in some cases it is, this is the beginning of the good news. So once again, every time you hear that word gospel, just think good news, right? It's good news to all who hear. And so, um, and so he says, and he declares like what I'm telling you, right? There's there's going to be a lot of stories in this, and, and, and he's, he's declaring like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to tell you about a lot of my experiences, but at the end of the day, what I want you to catch most is this is the good news about Jesus. Now, the good news about Jesus certainly contains some, some bad news, specifically for Jesus, like we looked at last week, but Mark wants us to see all of it as good news to us, right? So, so what he does then from the rest of the book, from those, those entry verses, is he begins to try to convince his readers and us that he's presenting 
Jesus to us, and he wants us to see the life and the journey of Jesus and, and what he was up to with his friends and his followers and even those that opposed him. Mark wants to show us and reveal to us who Jesus is, and he does that through Jesus's actions. Like, what does Jesus actually do when he's here? And then he does it through Jesus's words. Like, what does Jesus speak? And he wants to reveal to us that Jesus is, in fact, God's long-awaited promised Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that Jesus really is bringing good news. He's delivering people from demonic oppression. He's healing people. He's healing a paralyzed man who has this encounter with Jesus and then can walk again. He heals a man with leprosy. He's bringing so much hope and healing to people. He does all these amazing things like feeding the, the thousands of people who barely had any food. He claims, Mark, to have seen Jesus calm a raging storm with merely the authority of his words. He teaches then again with, and this is Mark's word, this is the words of people that heard Jesus' teaching, that he teaches with an authority that's just something different about the way that Jesus speaks, the words that he speaks. It seems to be coming from something else than we've heard before. And he speaks with this authority and conviction that, they've, that they have not heard, like, like teaching that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world, right? In the world, you're great if people serve you, right? That's our recognition of greatness. But Jesus flips this and says that in the kingdom of God, you're great if you give yourself to others and serve them. Jesus grabs this large crowd of curious followers and watchful onlookers, but in that crowd, he also has a smaller group of friends and devoted and dedicated followers. And it's those people that he spends most of his time with investing deeply in people like Mark and Peter. But not everyone loves Jesus, Mark reveals to us. A lot of people just liked what Jesus could do for them. They liked the signs and the wonders that Jesus did, but then they dismissed his teachings. They dismissed his exhortations. And then we've got like the religious leaders, and we see this like escalating, growing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day that just that just like culminates in what we've been doing the past few weeks. They did not like him at all. He was a threat to their power and their authority. And then Jesus shows up though, and he's claiming to do something, right? That only God can do. He hears Jesus, not only healing people, but actually declaring over them that their sins, their trespasses are now forgiven. Who has authority to do that but God? So they despised him. They despised him because he claimed great things. They despised him because of who his friends were, right? Jesus's reputation is that he was friends with the most deplorable people in that community. He ate with sinners and tax collectors, but man, they got particularly angry at Jesus when he would call them out, right? When Jesus would pull them aside or sometimes confront them in public and say, listen, like, you're no longer even following the law. You've got all these like made up rules that you've just added more rules and rules to. And he calls them out on their hypocrisy. He calls them out on their like not gospel centrality. And, and, and he calls them out on how they're just only concerned with external 
behavior and putting on a show, but they have no desire to call people to like internal motives. So about halfway through Mark, one of his disciples, Peter. Now, we've been spending a lot of time with Peter. Most scholars believe that Mark's gospel is like very coordinated with Peter and his account. They were friends, they were traveling companions. And so as Mark wrote this, he was probably like, man, Peter, what was your experience through this? And so we see Peter, and Peter is not painted like well. He's not painted in a good light necessarily as as Mark's gospel wraps up, right? But we see Peter halfway through making this amazing declaration, this confession that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. He is in fact who they had been waiting for, that God has now sent this promised Savior in the person of Jesus. But it's clear that he has this deep misunderstanding and misconception of what that Messiah was supposed to do and be along with all of his disciples, right? So to Peter and the disciples, we mention this often, the, 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 the Messiah would show up and, and they're, they're thinking like the biggest thing that the Messiah could do for us in this moment is relieve this physical oppression that we're facing, Right? We're a conquered people, we're a devastated people, we're an oppressed people from this empire of Rome. They're like soldiers on the ground, boots on the ground in our, in our nation, and they should not be here. And so, man, they believe that the purity of their nation, right, ethnically, culturally, religiously, will bring about and usher in the reign of the Messiah. And so they're thinking like, this is it, the Messiah is going to kick out Rome, that he's going to be this military, political leader and king, one who's going to overthrow Rome. But for Jesus to be the Messiah, what we find out to be consistent with all of God's word. Like we can look back to the scriptures. We can look to places like Isaiah, famously Isaiah 53, and we can see that God's design and intention and plan for his Messiah is so different than what the people expected. He would be a king, but he would be a king that would suffer. He would be a suffering servant, a king who will bring God's rule and reign, but by by giving up his very life. And the disciples simply don't have a category for that. The world today does not have a category still to this day for Jesus. Nobody else, no other leader has modeled what Jesus modeled for us. Several have been martyred. Several have died for what they believed in. But as we'll see today, as we was revealed to us last week, Jesus' death is in a category all its own. The kingdom of God, as Jesus reveals, it just simply does not look like what they anticipated or what they expected or what they desired or what they thought it would. They think that following Jesus for them, and we see this with Jesus' brothers and his family and even some of his disciples, man, they think that like we're attaching ourselves to this leader who is charismatic, who's drawing people to himself. He's got this large crowd. And so subsequently, like, like we'll gain some fame, we'll gain some celebrity, we'll gain some status by attaching ourselves to Jesus. But that's not what Jesus in his kingdom ever was meant to be. And so Jesus makes it abundantly clear that following him is actually more like dying. It means carrying your own cross. It means 
repenting and rejecting sin, sin like pride and selfishness have no place in the life of a believer, rejecting the desires to be the ruler of your own life. And Jesus is like gutting all of that out of his disciples and saying, that is simply not something that a follower of Jesus, a follower of mine will be about. And then in chapter 10, Jesus grabs his followers and he tells them this. He says, I I, I did not come to, to, to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Like they're scrambling, like, Jesus, how can we serve you? And he's like, that's not even why I'm here. Jesus is trying in that moment to prepare them for the mission that he calls them to. Like, follow me, do what I do. And so give your life away now as the church, as my followers. Don't seek to be served, rather serve. Serve those around you, serve your family, serve your friends, serve your city. That's what Jesus did. That's what his followers will do. And so then Jesus comes up and he repeatedly says to his disciples, because they're not getting it, because the density of what he's saying to them, it's hard for this to break through, right? They've committed their very existence to following this guy. But over and over again, Jesus says, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer. You're going to see it. You're going to see this suffering. You should only look back to Isaiah to know that this is what I must face and I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And they're like, what? Like none of that made sense. But the disciples, they don't get it, right? So we see them as you and I would, like responding in confusion and fear. Like we sit on this side of the cross and we sit on this side of the resurrection and we confess those things to be true and to believe. And so we have assurance that comes with this belief. But for the disciples sitting on the other side of the resurrection for them, they just act in confusion and fear, right? They, they have these different expectations of what Jesus will do and be. So he goes to Jerusalem and he, he takes this ragtag group of followers with him. And the religious leaders, man, we see them, it escalates once he reaches the city and they up their game, right? And they're trying to trap him. They're coming at him hard. They're challenging Jesus's authority, his teaching, and they try to trap him by this, like, all these, like, questions these like theological landmines that they lay out before him and like man if we can just cause him to hit one and stumble we can get him but he always responds in a way that they don't expect he flips it on them and actually like reveals something about their hearts and minds and he does that lovingly and sternly and i think the thing that we always have to remind is that yes they're deeply opposed to jesus the religious leaders are deeply opposed to jesus but he's not opposed to them. He loves them. They're his image bearers. He created them. And he's in these moments with the Pharisees and with the other religious leaders, he's calling them out of that and delivering good news to them. But then he gets to this point, right? In these confrontations with the religious leaders where they just simply don't even ask him any questions anymore, right? And they end up like cutting this deal with one of his other disciples who ends up betraying Jesus for money, betraying the Savior for money, betraying the Savior for the one thing that so many of these disciples desperately wanted, which was fame and status and recognition. He trades that relationship with Jesus just so he can get a little something. Jesus is arrested. All of his disciples flee. They abandon him. He was tortured and executed like a criminal on a Roman cross, and yet that was nothing compared 
to the spiritual suffering, the real agony of his soul that he went through, and all of it. Like Mark wants us to see, all of it was God's perfect and pleasing plan for his Messiah and for all of creation. That the mighty Son of God, the Lion of Judah, the one who displays so much power and authority, does not use that power and authority for himself. And he dies what seems to be a powerless death. And so to recap, even just last week, like Mark 15, after Jesus' death, we are introduced to these three like very significant characters in the story of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And they play a vital role later in the story, as we're going to see. And then we're introduced to this character named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a member of the same, the very same council that had just condemned Jesus to death. But it says that he himself, like something was disrupted in him. He saw Jesus. He saw all of these interactions. He, he was a part of all of the questioning but Jesus turning it and flipping dislodged from Joseph of Arimathea all of the bad news that he had in his heart about his religious efforts trying to earn favor with God. And he heard the good news of the gospel and he claims Jesus as Messiah, as king. And so it's such a fascinating story to see who rises up in the end. The disciples flee and you have these cast of characters that come to Jesus' side Joseph goes and asks for the body of Jesus after Jesus has died on the cross because the Sabbath was swiftly approaching. It started at sundown on Friday. So he's got these fleeting moments to not break Sabbath, to put Jesus's body in the tomb. And so he hastily puts Jesus into this tomb, this tomb that was his family tomb, and places some guards in front of that tomb to confirm that Jesus really and truly was dead. And so Joseph takes that body, he buries it, the body of Jesus. And it says that the very next day that, that the women, they, they see the tomb, they know where it's at. And so that's kind of the end of chapter 15. And so then um, that's all kind of previous to the Sabbath. And then the beginning of chapter 16 starts again, early the morning, the day after the Sabbath. And so then there's activity again, right? So for a period of time during the Sabbath, there's just this quietness as Jesus rests in his tomb, he, they, they put him in a, in, a, in a cave, they put him in a tomb, and well, that's just simply what you would do with a dead body, and what you would do with the body that has passed is totally expect that that body is going to remain in that tomb, because every other body that had passed and died, like I'm trying not to be too morbid here, had also just stayed in the tomb, right? Like that's what human dead bodies do, is they stay in a tomb. And so that's all they're expecting. Like Jesus is dead. The movement is over. But then it says when the Sabbath was passed, and once again we see these integral characters rise up again. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that may go up and anoint him. And so there's a lot at play here, right? These three women, they're mentioned again, each of them by name, and they have some spices with them to anoint the, the body of, of Jesus. And that's Partially because um, it was Jesus's body was so hastily prepared, um, and so there's all of these processes that they would walk through to embalm the body. But part of it is just to show respect for Jesus. So they show up saying like, "Okay, 
going to be a little bit gross, but we got to go into this tomb. We don't even know how we're going to do it, but we need to prepare Jesus's body, right? So just that indication that they showed up with those spices, which would be embalmed and, and covered the body. Like they just believed 100% that their friend Jesus was dead. It's common burial practice. So they're filled as they approach the tomb, just like you and I would be with, with grief, with, with sadness, right? They had just witnessed this like brutal public execution of their friend Jesus. They don't even have a good plan, like to the point where they don't even know how they're going to get into the cave or into the tomb. Like Mark says, there's this massive stone that's rolled in front of it, right? So it goes on and says, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, right? So they're just walking. They see now that, as we'll discover, that that massive stone is rolled away, right? Which, by the way, like, is it kind of cool having Easter in September? Like, we're doing it. So, you imagine, like, the tombs rolled, like, the stones rolled away. The, probably with some trepidation, they enter into the tomb. They go in, right? And it says, um, and, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And so that young man wearing a white robe, the other gospel accounts describe it as an angel of the Lord, right? And so they're startled, as you and I would be as they see this, right? And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, he has risen, he is not here. Man, like, like church, church, that's it. Like, I want you to hear that like that. Like, that's it. That is what we confess. That is what we believe. That is the gospel, right? Who was crucified, he has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So we got to camp out here a little bit on this angel's message in verse 6 and 7. So, so notice that at the end, right there in verse 7, the young man says, just as he told you. So Jesus, in Mark chapter 14, just a few weeks ago, we looked at this in verse 28, he's telling his disciples how he's going to suffer, right? He's laying out for them. This is all that's going to happen. None of it should surprise you, but of course it does. And he's saying, listen, here's what's going to happen. But after I am raised up, so he declares to his disciples, I'm going to be raised up. I will go before you to Galilee. And so the first important thing to understand is this angel is bringing a message that is really actually not his own message, right? He's just saying what Jesus has already said. He's reminding the women that are in the tomb now with him of what Jesus had already declared to be true, that he will be raised up. He will leave that tomb and he will go before them and meet them back in Galilee. And in, in, and in turn, he's telling them, right, to remind the disciples of what Jesus said, like, go back and tell the disciples, this is what, this is what Jesus told you was gonna happen. So, so this is not some like new message that the angel is proclaiming. This is something that the followers of Jesus would be able to go like, oh yeah, Remember a, a, few day, a few days ago, he, he actually said this to us. He said, this is what was going to happen. Another thing to notice is this, is that the message is a clear declaration of news, right? It's a clear and unambiguous message of what 
is going on, right? It's not the end. He's very distinct in it. So there's, there's no room for uncertainty. There's, there's no room for guessing what an empty tomb means for them. They're told straight up, the one that you seek, Jesus of Nazareth, your friend, the one that you just saw crucified, dying this painful, horrific death, he's not dead anymore. He has risen. He's not here. And right there, you have the gospel in its most basic terms, right? And this is so important. You guys, this is the singular message that the church has confessed to be true about Jesus since its inception. It is what we should confess every single day. Christ died on a cross. He raised again. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Should be our confession. Listen, if your confession, if what you say about Jesus doesn't begin and end with this confession, then you're saying something different than the church has always said about Jesus. The things that you might be saying might be true about Jesus, but what the church confesses, what we're going to see, like if we just jump next into the book of Acts next Sunday, we're not, we're going into 1 Peter, um, which I'm excited about, but you will see, right? Like not anybody doing what I'm doing up here, which is taking these letters. You just see people like Peter standing up, People like Philip standing up and saying, I, I don't know, like this is crazy, right? But I, but I saw my friend die. And, and, and listen, there's nothing terribly unique about that. There's nothing terribly unique about witnessing for them somebody die on a Roman cross. Hundreds, if not thousands of people, unfortunately, had already suffered that fate. So for them, they're not looking at Jesus on the cross, seeing something they've never seen before. Now there's something very unique happening when Jesus is on the cross, in him giving up his life. He's standing in our place. He's facing the wrath and feeling the full wrath of God as our propitiation. So certainly there's something very unique happening on the cross, but somebody dying on a cross in the first century in Israel, not that unique, but what they simply had no category for was an empty tomb. They'd never seen it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul would write, so he encourages the church in Corinth to, to just be a good news people, to remind them of what that good news was. He says, For what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance, what Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Like, I don't know, you, you guys know my stance. I'm not a huge social media person. But when I look on social media, especially like over the past year and a half, that is not the message I've heard preached about Christ. I've heard all sorts of other things. And again, those things may all be true, but, but this is what the church has always and historically confessed to be true about Jesus. It is our confession above all else. If your confession of what is true about Jesus doesn't begin with this and end with this and everything in the middle, you might simply have a different Jesus than the church confessed his disciples and friends. So here in Mark, we have this first like post-resurrection announcement of really what is the complete gospel. And this announcement in it, there's a command, right? And in that command, you hear the implications of the gospel. The angel says, 
to these women. He says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. So again, remember in chapter 14, all the disciples denied Jesus. They ran away from Jesus. And Peter, poor Peter, like not only does he run away, right, from his friend, not only does he flee from his friend in his friend's deepest hour of need, but even he has the audacity to actually deny him, right? So before all of this, during that scene over their last meal together, when Jesus said to his disciples, like looked him straight in the eye and said like, you will all fall away. In one way or another, you will all deny me, right? Peter starts arguing with Jesus that no matter what, emphatically, like, no way, not me, I will never deny you. He's even as bold as to say, I would rather die alongside you. I'd rather my fate be the same as yours. Like, bold declaration, it's heroic, right? We see it as something so significant, like, it's what we would want to declare. Like, I won't deny you. And then you fast forward to, to right after Jesus' arrest. And we just walked through this, but I want to frame all of this up together to, to that place where Jesus is being held and he's facing that trial. And Peter, not wanting to be identified at all with Jesus. He's curious. He wants to see the fate of his friend, but he's not willing to step out of the shadows and claim Jesus as a friend. He's warming himself by this fire, but, but we don't, we don't really know all that's going on with him, right? There's all these people around. There's this servant girl. She recognizes Peter, and he's like, she's like, wait, weren't you like one of the guys that was following him? And Peter just straight denies it. He's like, I don't, I don't know what you mean. I don't understand the words you're saying. I don't even know what you're talking about. And, then, and it sounds like there's other people around that are witnessing this, and they're like, no, she's right. Like, I'm pretty sure she's right. I'm pretty sure that this guy is one of the dudes that was rolling with Jesus. And so Peter hears this all, all of these accusations coming his way and totally forgets and recants from that, that declaration. Like, I'll die alongside you, right? Nope, I'll just actually deny you. And he does it, right? And, and he's acting like he's never even heard of Jesus. And then they start putting the pieces together and they start realizing that things aren't adding up because they can recognize that Peter has this accent like from a specific area, like, wait, you, you sound like you're from Galilee, right? And they put two and two together and they realize, pretty sure that Jesus is from Galilee also, right? And, and everyone in Galilee has like heard of this Jesus guy. And isn't that where this whole Jesus movement started, right? And so Peter's story is not adding up. This guy is saying that he doesn't even know what they're talking about. So they call his bluff, right? But Peter doesn't back down. Right? His bold declaration of, I'll die by you, I'll never deny you. He's being bold here. He's not backing down. He's just not backing down from his denials of Jesus at this point. Right? Um, he's, he's reacting. So he's, he's caught in this lie and it escalates to the next level. It says that, that he actually invokes curses upon himself. He gets to the point where he's swearing that he doesn't even know Jesus. And then the rooster crows for the second time and it's like a light bulb goes off. And he immediately is taken back to that moment where Jesus says that you will, in fact, deny me three times before the rooster even crows twice. And then it says that Peter's response to that was that he broke and he wept. Now keep in mind, this is a Peter who is acting this way all before Jesus goes to a cross and certainly before his friend walks out of a tomb. 
right? So the, the, the pain of knowing what he had just done, of denying the one he had walked with so closely for three years. Peter was there on the mountain with James and John. He had seen Jesus transfigured before his very eyes. He shared every intimate and difficult experience side by side with his friend Jesus. He had heard the Father say out loud that Jesus was his beloved Son and he is well pleased with him. And here he is, having just denied that he even knew who Jesus was. And yet the angel said, tell the disciples and Peter, tell Peter, right? He calls Peter by name. Out of all the disciples, he calls Peter by name. It's kind of why I'm stoked to get on to 1 Peter, by the way, because this ends so Peter heavy, right? And like, I want you to hear this today. Like, just think about that. Like, Jesus is also calling your name as one of his disciples. He knows you. Like, he knows your brokenness. He knows your frustrations and your failures. He knows and is not surprised at your shortcomings or your sin. And look at Peter. Peter might have been shocked at, I mean, he just denied his friend. He might have been shocked at his denial that, that he reached that low. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus saw it. And so Jesus mentioning the disciples, and specifically Peter, is just such a clear picture of the radical nature of God's grace. Because how do you all do with betrayals? How do you all treat the people that betray you the deepest? It's hard to treat them like Jesus treats Peter in this moment. Yet Peter is called out by name, singularly, out of all the disciples. Specifically, I want you to go tell Peter that I am now alive. Here's, here's the deal. Something changes in Peter, right? So, so what, we're, what we're seeing here again is just these clear implications of the gospel, which is now this restoration of Peter. There's a denial. There's a betrayal that hits at every deep level for these friends. And yet here's Jesus, risen from the dead, restoring his friend. Look at what Peter would go on to write to the church throughout Asia Minor. 1 Peter 1.3, he says, Blessed be the God. Again, he just denied him, right? We just see this scene where he's like, I don't know who he is. I don't know what he's up to. I don't know if he's the Messiah. I don't know this guy. And then he writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Later on, Peter would say like, hey, always be prepared. We're going to talk about this. I don't want too many spoilers, but he would say like, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Now, how many of you have heard that through the lens of like, I got to have like all these apologetics. I got to be able to defend the faith. That's not what Peter's saying. What did Peter say his great hope was right here in this passage? Just look at it. Somebody, somebody say it. What's his great hope? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, Peter doesn't hang his hopes on anything else but that. And it changes everything for him. Before this, Peter and the disciples, before Jesus walked out of a tomb, guess what Peter was doing? You just see it. He's just, he's just ping-ponging off everything. He's just getting bounced around from culture, from pressures of people around him, right? And then the resurrection happens and he has an anchor for his hope and for his faith because there was simply no category for anybody walking out of a tomb. 
and it changes everything for Peter. His life is now formed by the crucifixion of his dear friend Jesus, and his life is now restored through the resurrection. There is a great passage in the book of Romans, right? It's right at the end of chapter four, and it talks about Jesus being raised from the dead for a purpose. And what is that purpose? For our justification. So now we stand before the Father, not condemned, but seen as righteous and just, not because of anything that we have accomplished, not through our own efforts, not through earning God's favor, not through our merit, but through what Christ does in this story. Paul writes, it will be counted to those who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up by our trespass and raised for our justification, right? Being justified before God means that when we put our faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, God declares us righteous before him. Our sins are not counted against us because they were counted against Jesus, Instead of us taking the righteous wrath of God that we deserved for our sin, Jesus takes it all upon himself on the cross in our place. And so by Jesus being raised from the dead, it's God the Father approving the work his son Jesus did on the cross. God the Father receives us now with open arms, not because of anything we have done, because of what Jesus has done for us. The resurrection means restoration. It means restoration for us as his image bearers. It means restoration for all of creation. That is the good news. That is our confession. Church, you have nothing else to cling on to for hope other than that, that Christ stood in our place and took the full measure of the wrath of God for us, and then walked out of a tomb, approved of by the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and now that resurrection power and life is now in us, is now available to us. It's what keeps us in Christ. It's what is restoring us today more and more into the image of his son Jesus. Now we have like the exact same message. Like the angel said, hey, to Mary Magdalene, to, to, to Mary, the mother of James, to Salome, he said, here's the deal. Like we could stay in this tomb. Like it could be safe in this tomb, right? I could tell you more and more about Jesus, but what I want you to do is hear the good news of Jesus, see how it has shaped and transformed you and given you life today, anchored you to this hope, but I need you to go tell other people about it. I need you to share this good news of our living now Savior with other people. So our mission is just the same as we leave here today, as we depart, as we respond in worship, we respond to the anchoring of our hope, to the truth of a resurrection. We receive it as good news for ourselves today, but who would we be as a people that have good news and yet refuse to share it? So go, be sent today. We'll send you out of here in a second. And please, may your confession to your friends, to your neighbors, be Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead, Christ living today. That is the good news of the gospel. Let me pray, 
and we're going to respond. Today we get to respond by singing. Uh, we can pray. We'd ask that if Hub City is your home, that you would give. You would give out of a spirit of worship. Uh, we use those resources and steward them wisely to partner with places in the city to be that good news to our city. Um, and then we would ask um, for those of you that know and trust and follow Jesus, for those of you that are placing today your very hope and faith and anchoring it to that confession, that you would go to the table, that you would go and receive what Christ so freely gave, his precious blood and his body broken and spilled for you today. So let me pray and let's respond.